So here's one truism about hospital flow. How you analyze the problems has everything to do with how you're likely to go about solving them. So, for instance, if you're not looking at things with the widest lens possible, including going outside hospital walls, you're not too likely to fundamentally change anything. And if you're not considering whether patients being cared for in the hospital might actually be better treated elsewhere, you're limiting your vision of changes needed. Now, it's not easy to look at the whole system of care, but if you do, the improvement strategies are much more likely to have almost a knock-on effect on the many interdependent parts and microsystems. Our guests want to make the case for this system-wide approach to hospital flow on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live bi-weekly, and after the show, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I also am IHI's Director of Communications. Whenever I bring this topic forward on WIHI, this topic of hospital flow, I'm reminded that it has a very technical re-engineering aspect to it. And yet at the same time, we're also talking about people, patients who are suddenly at the mercy of healthcare, and they and their loved ones can only hope that somebody knows what they're doing to prevent long waits or being stuck in the ED awaiting a bed on a med surge floor or awaiting a diagnostic test or surgery. Healthcare professionals to want to work without delays and bottlenecks. So let's get right to introductions. First, here's IHI's John Gothier. He's going to remind you about how to be a participant with us today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Um, on the right of our screen is the chat window. And if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This will allows our, our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see the questions and comments that are being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send me a quick message in, uh, in the chat, but a simple solution to any hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that keeps up, please let the folks at iChat Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive page over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with the chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI. Please take some time after the program to fill out a very quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks, John. We'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway point of the show. You're welcome to tweet during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets. Joining by phone from Cincinnati, Ohio, that's where I was born, Uma Kodagal is the Senior Executive Leader for Cincinnati Children's Population and Community Health Efforts. She's also now a Senior Fellow at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and after a time, and that was has been after a time as Senior Vice President for Quality, Safety, and Transformation. Welcome, Uma. Thank you, Madge. Glad you're here. Fred Reichman has been a practicing surgeon at the University of Cincinnati, Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center since 1984, where he is presently a professor of surgery. His interest in operating room management led to a collaboration to re-engineer safety, flow management, and care delivery in the OR at CCHMC. Welcome, Fred. Thank you, Madge. Also joining by phone, a little closer to home, we've got Pat Rutherford, a vice president at IHI responsible for developing and testing innovations and new models of care in patient and family-centered care and with improving access to the right care in the right place at the right time, among other work that Pat's involved in. Welcome, Pat. Uh, thank you, Madge. All right. So we're going to kick this off with Pat. Uh, we've got probably a few more slides than usual on today's show. We're going to really try and take you 
through some information that probably we could use some hours uh, with you to go into in any detail, but we hope you'll uh, get something out of our kind of top line uh, uh, discussion of these things, and you'll download the slides and uh, put them to some good use. So, Pat, you've certainly been working on flow with hospital teams for some time. The issue isn't a new one, I presume, for a lot of our listeners. Where have most organizations gotten to with their fixes, and um, is there some need for a new way to think about and frame this problem and solutions? Uh, Thanks a lot, Madge. Um, Well, I think uh, in our experience at IHI and working with teams uh, over the last probably 15, 20 years uh, and more recently through some of our innovation work, um, what we found is virtually everyone in hospitals is working on flow, but very, very few have achieved uh, the results that they desire. Most are plagued by overcrowding in emergency departments, patients being boarded in the emergency room waiting for a bed on an inpatient unit or intensive care unit, delays in transferring patients uh, from OR recovery areas or intensive care units, delays or cancellations in OR procedures, and off-service patients and many more issues that probably everyone on the call is very familiar with. Um, uh, most hospitals also were experiencing increases in uh, volume, uh, continuing increases in volume, and also have constrained resources, whether they be beds, OR suites, emergency room uh, space, or staffing in any of the clinical areas. This has created immense challenges uh, for uh, clinical teams to provide uh, timely and safe care in hospitals. So as Madge has already uh, uh, mentioned, that man- what we believe is, is one of the key strategies here is to manage flow as a hospital-wide system, and we think it's very critical for success. Um, isolated projects in various uh, parts of the hospital will not lead to the improvements uh, that are needed. Um, furthermore, you know, delays in treatment and failure uh, to provide the right care in the right place at the right time puts patients at risk for potential harm and suboptimal care. So the system-wide approach is critical not only for efficiencies and efficiency targets, but it's also essential for safe and reliable hospital care. All right, so you're going to yeah, so you're going to walk us through now kind of some pretty uh you know, terrific and hefty stuff here, but some very very important principles. So sorry to interrupt and take it away. <laughs> okay, Madge. Yeah. Um, so, um, so as Madge as Madge just mentioned, uh, what IHI has done over the last year and a half is try to take a look again at some of the work that's being done through a variety of different approaches and strategies, and see what IHI might contribute to the field to help make sense of a lot of the of various approaches. So, one of the things that we think is important is, you know, what what would performance goals look like for you? What are they? You know, improving flow is a vague term until you get down into real specific targets. So what what would success look like? What are your performance goals? Uh, is it to decrease overutilization of the hospital services, optimize patient placement to ensure the right care, the right place at the right time within the hospital setting, decreasing uh, external diversions as well as internal ones or off-service patients, maintaining adequate staffing levels. I hear this from most hospitals. is really challenging to have uh, flexible staffing models that really uh, can guarantee quality and safety with variable census. Uh, Increasing clinician staff satisfaction with hospital operations is oftentimes not on the dashboard of, 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 of metrics, and we think that one's important as well. And lastly, is that, uh, that demonstrating the return on investment for this work, not only in um, efficiencies and, and utilization of hospital resources, but what you know, what what are some of the goals that we have in terms of utilization and productivity? Uh, next slide, John, please. Uh, this slide uh, we've tried to depict what you know the basic components of hospital flow are a lot of attention is is paid to to the entry into the hospital system and the discharge part and clearly the thickness of these arrows and lines uh is is 
It's to symbolize what we think approximation of volume is. So you see the green line at the bottom, uh, bottom right-hand part of the screen of discharges, and then lots of red lines coming into the hospital that are the inputs. Those are very important. But all of those arrows in between units, uh, back and forth between units, all of those are also very important parts of hospital flow. So this has been helpful for teams to, to depict and look at what does, what's the complexity of hospital flow. Uh, solving this problem uh, utilizes a lot of different strategies, including uh, using uh, uh, strategies for complex adaptive systems. Um, at iChai, if you're familiar with iChai's work, uh, a lot of most of our work, uh, we developed what were called driver diagrams, uh, which put forth our theories about what it will take to achieve the results that are listed on the left-hand side of this slide, the outcomes of decreasing overutilization of hospital services, optimizing patient placement, increasing clinical satisfaction, and uh, demonstrating the return on investment. Our three major strategies for all of our results-oriented work are include uh, developing or building will or having the will to do this work, uh, better ideas, and then execution strategies. And I'll go through very briefly uh, what we mean by some of these. So building will. Uh, delivering right care, right time, right place is a strategic priority at both the executive level of the hospital. The executive team has this as a priority as well as the board. Uh, there's a mutuality between physicians and hospital executives, aligned incentives. Uh, moving from uh, volume to value-based strategies is, is clearly, there's an alignment with that, that approach as well. And uh, avoidance of capital expenditures is a big um, incentive for hospitals to be doing this work and becoming more efficient and productive with the resources they have, and then uh, developing the return on investment. Uh, next is uh, um, the execution. You know, we were, we need to have really good execution strategies, hospital-wide connections and interdependencies between units, accountable executive leadership, using metrics to guide learning, and uh, the science of improvement, using data analytics. There's much more uh, data that's now available than there was even 10 years ago to help uh, forecast, you know, what the demand uh, patterns might be, and to provide real-time capacity and demand management uh, assistance. Cooperation across organizational boundaries, um, helping to transfer patients to other community settings, and uh, on the front end, working with primary care practices and other settings of care to reduce some of the inputs into the hospital. And last but not least is quality improvement capability uh, throughout the whole organization and across the continuum. Next to the ideas, uh, there are three major um, uh, strategies we're using in terms of, or, or categorizing our ideas are there shape demand, match capacity and demand, and redesign the system. So this is the first one, shaping demand. This is the area where um, Hospitals, most hospitals or many hospitals are not either making the connection between some of the things they're already doing in this area and how it affects hospital flow and connecting it to those, those initiatives, or they haven't uh, really embarked on some of these changes. Thinking really seriously about uh, 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 honoring the end of life or advanced care planning wishes of patients and family members for their loved ones. Many studies show that uh, many patients die in intensive care units that could, should, would be cared for in other places. Decreasing readmissions, uh, relocating low acute care in the EDs, etc. You can see down the line there. Uh, I think they're all critically important. S5, uh, there, uh, that means, um, Secondary driver is decreasing artificial variation in surgical scheduling. Uh, Fred Reitman's going to talk a lot about that. Uh, and then lastly, you know, linking it to your safety initiative, decreasing demand for hospital beds by reducing hospital-acquired conditions. And the next is matching capacity and demand. This is where most people are, are I'd say everyone is working on this, and I think it's uh, it's really an important uh, part of our strategy, but it's not the only one. So listed here are operational management systems for hospital-wide flow, using data to drive that real-time capacity and demand management, and early recognition of high census and surge planning. And lastly, 
uh, is redesigning the system, uh, utilizing uh, lean uh, methodologies, I think, are critically important here, and this is where the lean methodologies fit in, uh, improving efficiencies and length of stay and throughput in the OR, the ED, ICUs, and med surge units, other areas as well, but those are, those are critically important to flow. And then uh, improving efficiencies and coordination of discharge processes. Again, you're going to hear about uh, an innovative approach to this from Fred Reichman. And lastly, reducing length of stay for patients with complex needs, managing uh, length of stay outliers, really taking a look at that variation and seeing what you can learn about the patients to stay in the hospital uh, lengthy periods of time. And then lastly, uh, what it's going to take, we believe, um, uh, is a whole portfolio of projects, uh, both at the macro level uh, and in these four major microsystems, the emergency department, critical care units, med-surg units, and operating rooms. And the shaping demand, matching capacity and demand, and redesign the system strategies apply at the macro level and within the microsystems. And so this is just an array of um of different projects that we think uh, are likely to be needed uh, to get to the goals of right care, right place, right time. And I think now I'll hand it over to Uma. Thank you so much, Pat. And I think if we can invite everyone to sort of think about this setup that Pat has just given and some of the broad ideas here. Uh, again, the, there's a link right here in the chat if you want to, if you haven't already, uh, you can access the slides right there. Um, so let's hear, we're going to now uh, drill right down to Cincinnati uh, Children's Hospital Medical Center. And we're going to start off with Uma Kodigal. And Uma's going to help us understand how and why uh, Cincinnati Children's decided to take a system-wide approach uh, to flow uh, and what that looks like. Thanks, Uma. Thank you, Madge, and Pat, thank you for teeing up the information really about how one thinks about flow. I think uh, uh, several of the things you referred to I will probably uh, second in some of my comments. Uh, hospital flow is a challenge that many people face, and I think for us at Cincinnati Children's, it became obvious to us when one of the parents, and actually a young woman that was in college at that time, came back to our first design session when we were trying to figure out how to transform our system, and she said, I get stuck in your system all the time. And I can still see her face and remember her comments. She said, I'm stuck waiting in the waiting room. I'm stuck for surgery, I'm stuck to be discharged. And she said, could you just do something to unstick the place? So the flow, the challenge for flow is not only true for families and patients, like the one I mentioned, but it's true for medical staff, house staff, surgeons, as you'll hear Fred talk about, for nursing, for how we run our units. The challenge with flow, of course, is that it is multiple sites, but as Pat has pointed out in her very complicated approach to the key driver is that all sites are interactive and interdependent. So one of the challenges is where do you start? In our case, we started like many people do with discharge process as our place to work, but very quickly learned after quite a bit of time that that was a problem. On this slide, you'll see our set of system level measures and you'll see the first big pink circle that says access, flow, and productivity. That young woman and that mother that talked to us about flow caused us to create a metric for flow across the organization that is still used today, which is the percent of patients delayed in our system. And this is a composite measure of delays from the ED inpatient, from the PICU out to the floor, and from the PACU out to the PICU. And so in the next slide, you will see that uh, in the center top box that's colored is that composite measure of flow, the percent of patients delayed in our system, which we view as these three lynch points for this work to happen. So after a couple failed attempts of trying to tackle flow through tackling it at a subsystem level, we began to understand in our big aha was that, in fact, the management of flow depends upon the, uh, understanding artificial variation. And Fred will talk to you a little bit about what that led us to and how we began to think about that. And as we began to think about the operating room, many of the things that Pat highlighted, the relationship between physicians and the executive team, the opportunities to work across boundaries, the accountable executive leadership that provides oversight of system-level performance, 
the cooperation necessary between the operating room, the ICU, and the lowly inpatient unit in order to understand how the patient flows better. So these were all pretty important things that we included in our design, and Fred will go through them in more detail. But alignment was key. So this design shows our model for alignment across the systems. You can see that the inpatient team was a team that had about 32 inpatient units, the outpatient team, you know, over a million visits, the ED, looking at thousands of ED visits. But these leaders, and Fred at that point was leading the perioperative team, really came together to say, how do we work across the system? So flow as a system level measure and a system level priority was managed by this team that worked across it so that the operating room could do the things that Fred will describe, but have a place to put the patient in the ICU or that the ED could run their ED in a way that the wait time to admit in a room would be you know, less than two hours. So these challenges require alignment and, and really careful alignment. They require executive oversight so that the cooperation is ensured, that the resources are there, that uh, nobody throws uh, sort of the, the red card to say, no, I'm not going to do that, um, and uh, becomes important. Another uh, big area that of interest and of work in advancing flow is advanced analytics. So most of the time when we are looking at our analytics, we're looking at processes over time, but really getting it right is important. And on this next slide that Matt just teed up is that for us, flow was a safety initiative as well. And an example would be that I remember early on was a child that, was, that needed insulin, so a diabetic child that was admitted, but was because the, the room was, there was no room available on the usual floor that we would put that child on, the child was in another unit and had an insulin overdose. And that really prompted us to understand, especially in a pediatric hospital, especially where the age range is wide, especially where you might have similar issues around complexity and specialty, that the competence and the capability of individual groups of teams, nursing, etc. to take care of patients was very disturbed when the wrong patient was in the wrong place. And so getting those rights right, flow has a huge role to play in safety. And prediction, as you'll hear from Fred, is a huge part of that work. So we brought in really operations management, operation management analytics, an executive team that oversaw that, a senior leader like Fred that let the, let the flow work that allowed us to succeed. So I think um, really important in this, in this work is getting those things right, getting the, the data right, getting the oversight right, understanding where to start. As Fred will tell you, starting in the operating room is important, but it's the hardest place to start. But if you don't start in the operating room, the rest of your flow doesn't give you quite the benefit that you want. Pat showed you data on a portfolio of projects, flows of complex work. It requires a nested portfolio of work. Therefore, it requires deep capability building at the whole system level, but also at each microsystem level. And I've talked to you about data analytics and project management, obviously, as you think about all these intersecting parts and work together. So today, I think Flow at Cincinnati Children's is quite different from what it was when we started. It's been a long journey. That graph I showed you starts from around 2002, and we're in 2017. And we've tackled flow across all of those maps that Pat showed you, the operating room, the inpatient unit, the ED, um, predictions of care, uh, predictions of opportunity in the outpatient system, in our, uh, you know, in our short-term units, and uh, all of that. So I'll stop there, Matt, and turn it over to Fred. All right. Well, thank you so much, Uma. And everyone can start, as some folks have, you can start thinking about some of your questions and comments for uh, Uma and Pat, and now Fred Reichman. Uh, Fred, everyone tends to focus on the ED, and the emergency department is ground zero for flow problems because that's often where we can most see them <laughs> stacking up. Um, but that can really... Uh, distort uh, one's sense of actually how to go about all this, and so you're going to take us into the operating rooms, at least among other things, and uh, tell us uh, what you've been figuring out. Thanks, Fred. Well, thanks, Madge, and uh, I want to 
try and present uh, some of our portfolio work, much of which, as you can understand, was done in partnership with UMA and so many other people. But uh, the first thing I want to address is your question of why work in the OR. Uh, UMA's already called us out as one of the hardest places in the hospital to actually change, but it's a key place to work if you're going to shape flow uh, in the system because it's central to admission variability. Elective surgery is probably the most unpredictable component of flow because it's entirely at the discretion of the individual surgeons. And so it it is central to admission variability, which has to be controlled. The other major contributor to admissions uh, backup in the uh, both the ED from patients that are on hold and patients who are backed up in the uh, hospital is because of uh, variability in OR flow, which leads to both upstream and downstream delays. But the most important reason to work on flow in the operating room, as Uma's already called out, is this is a major safety issue. And uh, in the operating room, the ability to deliver care without delays is critical for patients to get uh, treated without developing additional complications. So working in that environment becomes a very important uh, place to improve safety. Um, can I have my first slide, please? Uh, if yeah, I think the other reason to work in the OR is because it illustrates a major flow concept that we'll talk about as we go through here, which I would call streams of care. And these are unique patient flows that can be identified, quantified, managed, and resourced, which will then improve and enhance your efficiency. And identification of these allows management of both the scheduling and the resources or providers that are needed to provide care. And in the OR, these two streams are really the unique stream of urgent and emergent cases which uh, show up, which are really natural variation and occur because of the environment, and the very unpredictable artificial variation that is seen in the OR stream of elective surgery. And uh, the last reason to work in the OR is this is a superb example of the value of analytics and mathematical modeling to predict resource needs and allocate resources. What I've shown you here is a diagram of how our operating room and so many others work. We allocate the majority of the time as scheduled block time to surgeons, and then when emergencies present themselves, they either are insinuated into the schedule and push all the other cases to the end of the day, or they are added at the end of the day. Either of these two uh, environments produces long add-on lists, inappropriate waiting times for urgent type of uh, cases, and it forces you as a surgeon to do elective complex cases, oftentimes later at night with the wrong team in the wrong place at the wrong time. So our model analyzed urgent and emergent surgical cases as separate streams. We looked at frequency of occurrence, time of day that they presented, and the operative case time. As an organization and leadership group, we then specify what we consider to be safe waiting times for individual cases based on medical urgency. In our case, we stratified that into five groups, but it could be different in different location. And then we applied rules to the uh, analytics. In our case, we said the most urgent case should never wait more than 30 minutes to get in the operating room, and others would be stratified according to different times. So if I could see that next slide. Uh, oh, you got it up there. The analytics then, uh, it's important to recognize, present you with possible solutions. The analytics do not give you an answer. The answer is achieved by applying the analytics to the, quote, rules that you've established within the system. And when we applied those to our system, what we achieved was on the right-hand side of the slide where we had two new add-on rooms and one work-in room that allowed us to take our urgent and emergent stream out of the elective schedule and then do elective cases in the elective rooms. The important thing about this to recognize is that we thought there would be lower utilization in the urgent emergent rooms, and in fact, it's almost identical to our elective room uh, utilization. If we look at the next slide, you'll see what the results of this system were. 
this is our BDE cases, which are the less urgent cases, and our target goal was 85% of these cases needed to be done within their appropriate time frame. And as you see, for almost a decade here, we've been able to have these cases done at more of a 90 to 92% level. The only time this performance has deteriorated has been when we closed down one of our urgent emergent rooms to do renovations, and uh, because we removed resources, we deteriorated our performance. The next slide shows the all-important A cases, our most urgent cases. Our target here, I'll remind you again, was 30 minutes uh, access. You can see this is more variable, but this varies due to surgeon preference on preoperative stabilization, and during this decade, we have rarely had a time when we couldn't access that room within 30 minutes. You can see for the astute observers here that we are not tracking this any longer because our 10-year performance was so repetitive and reliable that we now just do uh, selective sampling of that. The next slide shows uh, uh, the result of this. Uma referred to what we uh, allude to as critical care failures, and the work that we did here in the operating room and other places like our ICU have dramatically changed our access and safety. So this critical uh, flow failure concept is really defined as an event that is preventable, and when it occurs, there's a high likelihood it could lead to an unsafe situation. So some of these would be lack of a needed intensive care unit bed, a mental health patient in a non-mental health bed, and our work has influenced all of these. If you look at our delayed and canceled surgery due to lack of bed capacity, this is primarily our ICU work, and uh, the work in the operating room, you can see it is extraordinarily uncommon for us to delay or hold surgery at Cincinnati Children's. And to put this in perspective, we do roughly 34,000 cases in our system per year here. So it's a very busy operating room. One of our rules in the ICU was never to operate an ICU without a room available for an urgent need patient. And you can see we've been very successful on that. The reason the system has deteriorated a little in the last several months is uh, best seen in the uh, lower right-hand corner where you can see the number of mental health patients that we have had outside of a mental health unit occupying a med surge bed, which is affected flow, and we're actively working on that at the present time. Can I um, ask, Fred, can I ask you, I, I, I shouldn't yep. interrupt, sorry to break the flow. Um, That's okay. What, what's the, uh, in, in, I guess in brief, at least right now, what's the explanation uh, on the psychiatry uh, side here? Uh, is there something you can share? Yeah. I would say like all places in the United States, we're in the midst of a mental health and opioid mm -hmm. and uh, and other crisis. Uh, we operate actually the largest mental health inpatient system, I believe, in the country for pediatrics. We have over 130 inpatient beds for either inpatients or long-stay residential patients. And in spite of that capacity, uh, we have continued to overflow. Uh, and as they stay in med surge beds, they then occupy critical beds for people on the lower left-hand box to get out of an ICU to a med surge bed because they are occupied by mental health. And yeah. we're working very hard on that, as so many people are. Thank you. Okay, go ahead. The next slide. <laughs> Um, I want to talk a little bit about our analytics and all of the work that we did behind these projects has been supported by discrete event simulation, which is really the analytic back, backbone for the work. Uh, another extremely powerful tool that we found using these analytics is prediction of future resource needs, as uh, Uma has said. Here's an example of the analytics behind predicting bed needs for a particular unit. In this case, it's the PICU. This analysis is, again, based on arrival frequency, length of stay, and future growth. And on the left-hand side, you can see the percent likelihood of a unit being full. The x-axis is the number of beds. And the three bars that you see in different shading are two, five, and seven-year census predictions. Using this predictive model, the analytics can predict how many beds are required. And then as a care provider, you have to decide how often you will tolerate a full unit, and when you compare these together, you can then plan for how many beds you need in the future so that you can deliver the right bed to the right person at the right time. Um, we are actually using this uh, predictive model right now to do all of the bed planning and unit planning for future space expansion here at Cincinnati Children's. Uh, 
The next slide shows you another key component of the analytic uh, uh, work, which is predicting staffing needs based on patient mix and uh, hospital flow. And this is really an, uh, an attempt to match capacity to demand, as Pat uh, pointed out in the key driver diagram. And here what we do is by taking on the left-hand side all of the available census admission and discharge data and at the top the total unit capacity, we now predict seven days in advance what we believe the unit capacity will be and each of the red boxes then identifies a potential overflow risk. This then allows us to appropriately adjust staffing several days in advance so if we have to care for a patient off unit, we have the right nurses and team taking care of them, or we can adjust uh, future admission profiles. The last thing I'd like to share with you is real quickly an example of one of the most important lessons I think we learned about flow. And that lesson was the pivotal role of discharge prediction and execution in managing flow. Really, quite honestly, if you don't have an empty bed, you can't admit. And although this seems obvious, many times people working on flow uh, view ED backups or congestion full ICUs, as Pat said, as the problem, when the solution to the problem is really better management of length of stay and discharge. This present model run by one of our colleagues, Christy White, is based on predicting discharge when you are medically ready, and this is done at the time of admission with set criteria which allow the team to discharge patients when they reach that criteria. We're presently doing this in over 70% of our total discharges, and as you can see from this graph, we are successful in 80% of those children discharging them within two hours of the time that they were medically ready. Um, this then allows you to uh, achieve open beds in a functional fashion, but we are discharging when patients have reached medically stable criteria. It is not pushing people out of the hospital early in, in order to uh, attempt to get empty beds. So I think what I've showed with you, uh, shared with you today, hopefully, is a couple examples of shaping demand, of matching capacity and demand, and redesigning the system, which were the three elements of Pat's key driver for ideas, and I think I'll stop at that. Okay. Well, thank you. I want to thank all three of you, Pat, Uma, and Fred, uh, for really uh, presenting such concise uh, uh, information that we know there's so much behind it, and I really want to invite uh, all of you to now now uh, pile on in the chat with any questions you might have and uh, comments. And, uh, John, just a quick reminder to everyone about how to use the chat. Yep, make sure that all your questions and comments are directed to all participants in the chat. Very, very good. Uh, while we, uh, I, I see some questions coming in, I just want to give Pat uh, maybe uh, an opportunity. Is there anything uh, was really nice to hear people kind of reference back to your earlier points, Pat? Was there anything else you heard from Uma and uh, Fred that you might want to uh, reinforce? Did we lose Pat? I hope not. Okay, we'll get Pat back. Madge? Yes, yeah, now I hear you. Madge? Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're here, I'm here, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. No, I, I think that uh, both Uma and Fred did a really beautiful job in a very short period of time of, of hitting the high points of uh, their phenomenal work at Cincinnati Children's. I guess the only thing I would say for those that are working in adult hospitals uh, that um, I, I, I am a pediatric nurse by background and used to work at Children's Hospital in Boston, and I can guarantee you that, uh, you know, and I've worked with adult hospitals and many other Many other uh, sites of clinical care in my time at IHI, and the exact same principles that apply to the children and adolescents and young adults at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, every single approach that they've used at Cincinnati Children's is equally applicable to every other adult setting and even psychiatric settings or other specialty hospital settings. So uh, uh, lest you think that it's pediatrics only, it, uh, all of the, the principles that they've used are connected to the driver diagram that I shared at the beginning and are equally relevant, all of the strategies to any other acute care setting. Okay, thank you very much, Pat. That's a good point. All right, so one very uh, concrete, I guess, for Fred, how did you set two hours uh, as your uh, discharge goal? Um, 
two hours. We realized that yeah. uh, we realized there were going to be some variables in there. We did not have complete control over, like. Um, parent transportation and physicians being able to see the patient right before they went home. Um, we give we have a system which notifies the attending staff and our uh, resident staff when a patient has met criteria which are identified at the uh, nursing level on the floor. And that then gives them a short window where they can come and see the patient before they leave. The um, Any additional delay beyond that we thought was unnecessary. Okay. And there's a great question here about what type of capacity management application do you use? Um, is that for Fred or Uma? Is that a bed tracking question? <laughs> uh, I Gee, I was really ho- data analytics. I was really hoping you knew. <laughs> Maybe the questioner can oh. elaborate, and uh, please do so, and then we we can come back to it. Here's an interesting. What did you mean with uh, Mad? Oh, go ahead, Mad, Pat. This yes. is Pat. I think probably the question is about uh, the predictive analytics. Okay, that's fine. Okay, that's fine. Ours are internally built. I don't know that we know what the software system is. I think that what we know is what we require the software system to do, but we're more than happy to find out and post it later. Okay, that sounds fine. I appreciate that. What about surgical cap at three? And I apologize because I don't know which where that was referenced, but maybe one of you do. <laughs> oh, I know where that's from. Okay. <laughs> if, you, um, if you look at the predictive slide, which is number six, uh, one of the things we did in the operating room in order to control ICU access to guarantee a patient that needed an ICU bed would get an ICU bed is we looked again at streams of flow of patients that were shorter or intermediate stay, which was zero to three days, versus patients which were long stays in the ICU. And uh, we actually have an OR cap for scheduling elective patients that require ICU admission, and that cap varies according to season. In this particular case, the cap was three elective ICU patients a day. And this does not uh, in any way affect emergent or urgent patients who are admitted or uh, the baseline pediatric patients. Those are all built into the uh, predictable part of the model, which is natural variation. The elective surgical cap applies to the elective surgical, very much variable uh, portion of the schedule. Thank you. Uma, let me ask you this question. Somebody asked right off the bat, uh, to what extent patients' families have been involved in informing uh, some of what the work that we're uh, uh, looking at today. You started off uh, with that great story of somebody said, get me unstuck from this place. Um, Has uh, has that been an ongoing uh, or more ad hoc? Uh, no, it's a very systematic approach to patient engagement and co-production. Uh, when we began our work on pursuing perfection, we engaged families with cystic fibrosis to tell us what was wrong with our system, and they really shaped uh, not only the local discussion but the national discussion for children with cystic fibrosis. So all of our teams have families um, and kids sometimes on them. And we have a family advisory council that's fairly large that we can go to for any of our concerns. Even our safety team has parents on it. These are employees of Cincinnati Children's that sit in with us when we review serious safety events or review our safety portfolio. In our chronic disease work and in work in the community, we actively have uh, people that basically are involved in what I would call co-production. So not just sitting at the table offering advice, but participating and helping design it and and uh, making sure that we're on track. Okay. Thank you very much. Transfer diverts. Somebody is wondering whether uh, that can throw things off, uh, the best laid plans. I don't know if, Pat, that's even come up in, in the numbers of uh, organizations that uh, you've been working with to develop some of the best practices. All right. We'll unmute Pat. Hold Questions on. about whether it yeah. uh, diverts from other hospitals and there's then increased demand in their own hospital. Um, uh, so I, I, I'm not certain I am clear about what the question is. Maybe okay. Uma or 
Fred might be able to. Fred, you could comment on our, it's a, it's a, it's a metric we measure on our flow failures. Okay. Fred? Yeah, we measure uh, that, but we rarely do uh, diversions. In fact, um, I would say in the last two decades, we've only diverted a couple days, and it's primarily because I think our system for being able to manage um, manage discharge planning to open up rooms and to actively manage how we bring patients in has been fairly successful. Um, uh, just before somebody thinks we're successful because our capacity is high and our and our population is low, we run uh, over 85 to 90 percent, well over uh, half of the days every single month for the last two years. So we're it's not because we have immense uh, unused capacity. There are several questions here about medically ready for discharge criteria, and uh, some are asking, is there a kind of a matrix that you might share? Uh, what, what more might you say about it, I guess, right now in terms of how, how that has developed? The medical ready for uh, discharge criteria were developed by the individual care teams based on algorithms of what they thought was best best care, care plans, if you will. Uh, they are uh, specific criteria about what, what targets the patient needs to meet for discharge. Uh, because they are set up by the care teams, they have been uh, well adapted and uh, have turned out to, to be uh, highly successful in predicting both who could go home as well as who will stay home. And we have actively looked at both length of stay and readmission on these patients that are in the uh, medically ready for discharge criteria, and uh, their length of stay is generally slightly shorter because of efficiency of discharge planning, and their readmission rate across the board is uh, the same or less than it had been prior to instituting those uh, measures. But uh, And we have about 70% of our discharge diagnoses are now covered. We're working on in orthopedic surgery and uh, oncology at the present time, and we think that when they're on board, we'll be uh, up in the 80-plus percent of all of our hospital discharges. Some of the unique kids that are bone marrow transplants, liver transplants, are much more difficult to manage, and they may never fall in that category. Thank you. But I think it's worth pointing out, Match, that uh, what Fred says, that these are common sense kinds of discharge standards, not something that we spend huge amounts of time over. So, so they might be a kid that could go home with asthma, you know, if if uh, they're free after they're free of oxygen within six hours if X happens, or a kid with gastroenteritis who's kept three feeds, or and they are posted both, in, as Fred said, on the discharge and very frequently on the board in the room so that together with the parents we're following progression towards that criteria. Uh, Uma, thank you. And uh, maybe I'll just get the broad view on this, and if we need to, uh, also Fred could say more. But you talked first about alignment, uh, not only across uh, all areas or many areas of the hospital, but also among leadership and physicians. Uh, this person is asking per- particularly maybe about the OR, but how do you achieve this? Um, are there, he's asking, are there physician incentive programs uh, to begin this work? Maybe say something generally about sort of what gets this uh, moving, this kind of alignment. So I think uh, our theory was that if we tackled flow, that we would have reduced safety. Our theory also, as Fred pointed out, was that if we tackled flow, surgeons wouldn't have to do their uh, cases that were tough, you know, really complex cases in the evenings, that they would have the predictability that what they scheduled was good. So some portion of the alignment was really around attractive forces and then delivering on those attractive forces. We did not specifically have incentives. The only only incentives, and Fred can correct me, among the surgeons, our broad incentives were around big outcomes that the organization achieved. So we set ourselves safety targets, and if we hit safety targets, then everybody in the organization got um, got benefits from it, not just only a few people. Uh, so I think um, I think the alignment was important. The tension was usually around loss of control. And um, I know that Fred and certainly I spent a lot of time 
Congress conversing about the loss of control and ensuring that that would happen. With some services, it took us sometimes years, Fred. I'm thinking orthopedics and decision about, you know, kid comes in at night with fractures and when they go to the operating room. But the calculation of capacity that Fred did enabled people to really have their work go better. And over time, that data and that support mattered. It was true that the Surgeon in Chief and the CEO and the CNO and the Chief Operating Officer and Fred, um, you know, were all on the steering team so that each member of this executive team understood and had the knowledge of what the other people did. So, so together we could we could present a united front. Data was critical in building alignment. We had to be true to the data, and eventually people saw the benefits of that. But alignment was like was like a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Fred, anything you want to add? Just that I would say safety was the biggest driver because we could we could say if we do this right, you're going to be able to deliver safer and better care, a higher level of efficiency so that, you know, especially in the operating room, if you had a sick patient where you knew you were going to get access and you were going to get the right team to take care of it and access for your uh, cases, which meant if you needed an ICU bed, you knew you were pretty much guaranteed you were going to have an ICU bed. The other big incentive for the staff in the OR work was that in our old system, because when we added emergencies, it just prolonged the day, it made it very hard for staff to be able to predict when they would be done or when they could go home, and and overtime and things like that were a, a real problem, and, and that all improved as we improved the efficiency of, of the work. But I would I would agree with Maria. There were no fi- I want mean, to be very clear here. There were no financial incentives for participating. There were no financial incentives for doing it. And when it got more efficient, the financial incentive was uh, that you could do more work in a more efficient fashion. And uh, and obviously that has its own ramifications. Thank you, Pat. Let me ask you this question: uh, on, Under redesign the system in the driver diagram, you talked about improve efficiencies and coordination of discharge processes. And somebody is asking, for example, uh, specifically perhaps about Cincinnati Children's, using uh, you know what kind of uh, coordinators or nurse navigation uh, models might be used. Have you found you and your team uh, any particular models that work better than others? Uh, well, I think the example match of the, uh, I think so many places are trying to uh, manage the flow of discharges and have them happen earlier in the day. Some are uh, setting, you know, discharge times or discharge appointments. In most places that I've seen, you know, that's not been that's not been very successful. So I think the the redesign work and the quality improvement work that. Uh, Christy White and her colleagues and others at Cincinnati Children's have done about uh, having uh, patients be moved on in care. So whether it be from the ED to the ICU or the ICU to the med surge unit or the uh, post-acute care unit to the surgical unit, that that two-hour window, uh, once the patient is clinically ready uh, to then to then uh, see that anything over that two-hour window would be a what I think Cincinnati Children's is calling a flow failure, and then that not as a punishment, but more, more as a learning system creates opportunities for learning. What what trends or patterns do we have, like what Fred showed in terms of uh, the patients with mental health issues and what, what the other effect is about uh, overall flow. I think those kinds of analyses of the flow failures, I think, probably would be one of the most effective things to drive a lot of redesign throughout the whole system. Okay, thanks. Go ahead, John. Yeah, yeah. Madge, uh, thanks. Um, so if you're listening to WHI today, you've obviously put some thought into flow and how it affects the care uh, patients get at your organization. Um, optimizing patient flow throughout the hospital is essential to assuring high-quality patient-centered care, as we've heard from our guest today. Um, IHI is proud to offer the Hospital Flow Professional Development Program, which is a newly designed four-day program that will help guide your team and organization towards high-leverage strategies to improve hospital flow. You'll learn from expert faculty and hospital leaders and develop action 
action plans to address your organization's unique opportunities for improvement. The Hospital Flow Professional De- Development Program, which is a mouthful, will take place um, May 1st through 4th right here at IHI. Um, and we'd uh, love to see you. For more information, visit IHI.org slash Hospital Flow. All right. Thank you so much, John. Uma, somebody is asking whether uh, you would describe Cincinnati Children's as having a lean culture with a management system. And if so, how did that culture help support this work? Um, I would not say that our core method for improvement is lean. Uh, Our core method for improvement is in the model for improvement. But I think uh, there are many aspects of lean that are incorporated into our work, as, as you heard today. I think our management system is really about uh, about nursing physician and business partners leading each microsystem, whether it be an inpatient unit, you know, or a mesosystem, a large division like cardiology or cardiovascular surgery or, um, uh, you know, digestive disorders. We are a research organization as well, as you know. And so at each microsystem level, we've got the capacity for a physician nursing leadership team along with the business team to manage a portfolio of work, to deliver on a set of outcomes that are aligned with a system level goal like and flow. So every division has that system inside them and that capacity inside them and that alignment towards the system level measures. And it's there in that microsystem that this this context is delivered in the individual ORs that support particular service lines or in the ORs, the MISA system as a whole. So I would say we have a management system. I would not say it's a typical lean management system, but it is a home-created version of lean management. Okay, pretty good. All right, thank you. All right, one more quick question, I think, for Fred, and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, How was or how do you determine a delay? What's considered a delay? How is that measured? Uh, the the s- delays that uh, are primarily measured are the ones that uh, that Uma mentioned. The first would be a delay from to the ED to an inpatient unit, and our criteria there is more than two hours from the time the patient is defined as care has been completed in the ED. They're ready to go to a floor. The second is the recovery room to the floor, which is discharge out of recovery for an inpatient. That target is 20 minutes the patient completed their recovery care. And then the third is uh, transfer from an ICU to an appropriate med surge bed criteria is two hours. Okay, that's very good. Thank you so much. All right, well, really terrific uh, comments and questions from you, our listeners. Thank you for your participation. I want to thank our panelists. How about, well, just go around the horn. We'll start with Uma, kind of next frontiers uh, with this work. Uh, It's really uh, fascinating to watch and observe, and I hope we can get you back uh, to talk about it some more. But any kind of uh, next steps? I would say get started before you're ready because the learning will happen as you fail. Okay. Well, that couldn't be more <laughs> succinct. I mean, fail early so you learn. Yes. I think flow is so intimidating that sometimes people work yeah. for the stars to be aligned. Yes. But I think using great analytics, you can figure out where to start. And getting getting started on this will save you money, make you money. Keep your patients safe and improve patient experience. All right. Thank you so much, Uma. Fred, uh, any final thoughts? Just two quick ones. I think the predictability of the analytics and their ability to identify improvements in the system, it was frighteningly accurate. And uh, so getting some skills at the analytics is uh, is great to do your planning. So plan and and not fail quite as often. Um, The other is that you can learn a lot from individual patients here, and uh, this is something Uma pushed us, which is don't build huge databases with hundreds of pieces of data to make a decision. Look at your patients that failed and learn from them and change your system. All right. Thank you so much, Fred Reichman. I can't uh, thank you enough. Appreciation to both you and Uma for what we can learn from your work. Pat, some parting uh, words for us. Well, I think that Uma and Fred have really summarized what I think are some of the key points. I think that, you know, using um, 
the, the system-wide approach and creating a learning system uh, using, you know, the data analytics, looking at failures. I think um, you, really the science of improvement is really the overall strategy that they have used and that we're promoting in our model. And I think that, um, you know, all the strategies that people are already probably employing in terms of operations management, lean, uh, capacity and management strategies, flexible staffing, and all those are key tactics as part of it. But I think overall, I think creating a learning system, uh, because this is a problem similar to patient safety that probably will never, well, it's not probably, will never go away. This is something that uh, enduring systems of learning and analysis, uh, I think, need to be employed to really uh, achieve the goals that everyone is attempting to do. All right. Well, big thanks to you, Pat Rutherford, Fred Reichman, and Uma Kotagal for all your hard work and for your help in planning today's program. Do check out the upcoming program on Flow in May that uh, Pat has a huge role with uh, and uh, along with others. Uh, next up on WIHI on March 23rd, we're going to be talking about what we're learning about patients with complex needs, so I hope you'll check that out. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we use for our discussion today. When you log off, you can look for that option, or you can uh, wait for um, all for us to get it up on our archive page, which will go live tomorrow. Um, you can also find the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. There are a great group of people who help make WIHI possible, and they include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson K. Stephanie Gary, Vindy, excuse me, Vicki Minden, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Haley Ladd. And it's my privilege to host a program that's about this kind of spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks everyone. I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good day.